From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Last month, President Trump began an all-out effort to see America's classrooms reopened after they shut down when the coronavirus pandemic hit the U.S., I would like to see the schools open, especially when you see statistics like this. We have great statistics on young people and on safety. So we would like to see schools open. We want to see the economy open. Now, there are not many policy decisions that I disagree with when it comes to the Trump administration, but this may be one of them. And a recent Associated Poll... Uh, press poll suggests I may not be alone, although my concerns are less about the coronavirus and more about the opportunity we have to rethink education in America. After all, I think it is safe to say that a contributing factor to the recent lawlessness on America's streets and the attack on America's history, well, I think public education is a major contributing factor. American history is not taught in our schools, at least not in a way that reflects positively on our nation. Now, remember, the National Education Association, the largest labor union in the U.S., has a death grip on public education. And what are they pushing in America's classrooms? Well, we're going to talk about it in a multi-part series entitled Rethinking Public Education. Now, in this edition, Kathy Roos, Senior Fellow and Director of Human Dignity at the Family Research Council, takes us beyond the closed doors of America's classrooms with a shocking and revealing look and how comprehensive sex education is being used to condition children to accept and even celebrate harmful sexual behavior. We'll discuss what you can do as a parent to protect your children. And as some school districts are spending up to 70 hours of classroom instruction on sex education, should we be surprised that national test scores in reading and math continue to decline? Education Secretary Betsy DeVos called the latest national assessment of student achievement devastating. Two-thirds of American students can't read at grade level, and reading scores have worsened in 31 states. Quote, this country is in a student achievement crisis, she said. We'll talk about the priorities of public education and how they are most likely not your priorities as a parent, with author and education expert Mary Hassan. And... What can parents do to improve the educational outcomes of their children? We'll explore the options available to parents that want to focus more on their children's learning than on an education system with Candace Duggar, founder, Reimagining Education Conference. The website, TonyPerkins.com. This is one of those programs, if you miss anything, you're going to want to catch it later. And it'll all be archived at TonyPerkins.com. In fact, uh, I would venture to say that this multi-part uh, program, this multi-program, uh, you're going to want to share this with your friends, especially those who have children or grandchildren in public education. And, in fact, I'm going to have a poll question for you. And go ahead and jot this down, this number down. You can text the word radio to 53445. That's the word radio to 53445, because this is what I want to know. As a parent... Has the coronavirus and the shutdown in public education caused you to rethink education options for your children? We're going to be talking about that today and uh, in another episode of Washington Watch. Well, as I mentioned, a recent AP National Opinion Research Center poll revealed that nearly half of adults that identify as Democrats do not think schools should reopen while only 14% of Republican adults share the same view. 
overall half say they should open with major adjustments. Now, the partisan divide is not surprising. Everything in this country is divided. But the focus of those who are opposed to reopening the schools is the coronavirus, not what is actually happening in the classrooms. Personally, I think the polling should reverse. I think more conservatives, if they actually knew what children were being taught and exposed to in our schools, would be opposed to schools reopening. In fact, they would see this as a revolutionary moment in public education. So what is happening in those classrooms? Here with uh, the results of uh, a multi-year engagement with public school curriculum is Kathy Roots. She's Senior Fellow and Director for Human Dignity at Family Research Council and author of a recent publication entitled Sex Education in Public Schools, Sexualizing of Children and the LGBT Indoctrination. Kathy, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Tony. All right, I'm going to jump right into it. What is happening behind the closed doors of the classrooms of America? Well, uh, you're right to emphasize closed doors because most public schools that I studied do not want parents to know what is happening behind those closed doors. What we are seeing public schools doing across the country is adopting um, a new approach to sex ed. Sex ed is not what any parent really thinks it is. It is today all about sexual rights on the behalf of children. It's about promoting a radical sexual ideology uh, on the part of children. Um, and it is about pushing a very dangerous concept on kids, which is the idea that they could be born in the wrong body. So transgender ideology is being pushed on kids in public schools today. And most of these things parents don't know about because, like I said, parents aren't supposed to know about it. It works better when parents don't know. So we're trying to let as many parents as possible know really what's going on in these public schools. Now, when you talk about this radical sex education program, now, just for a frame of reference, you know, most adults – you know, who were in school and had a sex ed class. It was like this, you know, one, uh, you know, hour curriculum box that they had to check where they had a football coach or a basketball coach taught this course. Also, they did driver's ed or something else like that, too. This is permeating every aspect of education. This is not just a standalone course. This is finding its way into every aspect of the classroom. It is. And one parent I talked to said it best, which which is, even if you can protect your kids from a bad sex ed class, in public schools, it's everywhere. The kids are swimming in it, was the phrase she used. And it's, she's so right. And we can talk about exactly how that's happening. But I want to say first that, um, that, that the word that parents or the phrase that parents should be watching out for is comprehensive sexual education, which sounds reasonable maybe to the untrained ear, but it's being pushed by um, really rich, powerful international pressure groups that are using um, sex ed as a vehicle to do some very damaging things to kids, manipulating kids. Um, the lead, the leader in the industry is a group called SECUS, which is the Sexuality Information Education Center. They have now rebranded, and their new brand is Sex Ed for Social Change. 
And what that means is they're, they're actually quite upfront about what they're doing when you scratch the surface a little bit. Sex ed for social change is using sex ed as a vehicle uh, to get young people to affirm alternative identities. It's a vehicle for racial justice, a vehicle for LGBT equality, a vehicle for reproductive justice, which is abortion, a vehicle to fight white supremacy, in their words. So it's all of these social... Um, cultural issues, Marxist issues, if you want to mm-hmm. really look at their yeah. approach. Um, and, and sex ed is, their, is, their, is the gateway to all of that, to manipulating kids on all of these issues. So sex ed is really not even about sex ed anymore. It's about transforming and manipulating kids. So, Kathy Ruth, you have been working on this now for a, a number of years. You kind of you began looking at curriculum in Virginia, but now you're finding that this is in schools all across America. There's almost no school district that's immune from the reach of these groups that are pushing a leftist agenda. Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, my, my focus as a, in my profession has been national politics and policy, pro-life, pro-family, pro-religious freedom. I started noticing what was happening in my own school district when I heard about them opening girls' bathrooms and showers to boys. So that kind of got my attention years ago. But what I really, it dawned on me, Tony, that as we were focusing on what's happening in Congress, what's happening even at the state level, right down the street at our local public schools, there was a spiritual battle raging for the next, over the next generation. And our side wasn't really showing up. And the, the sexual nihilists, the extreme leftists, they were there in force. And they're transforming the next generation of Americans in their own image. And we have got to get on the battlefield. So, so I, have, I have really rethought um, in my own work kind of where the really important flashpoints are for the culture. And we all have to get involved with what's happening in our local public schools, even if, like in our family, even if your kids don't go to that public school, we don't send our daughters to public school. And yet, and yet, the next generation of people that are going to inv- impact my family, you know, my city, my state, are being trained right. in these public schools. And so we've all got to really pay attention. And, yes, it's happening all across the country. Yeah, an extremely important point to make. And, folks, um, you know, in this uh, this program, we're going to be talking about the problems in education and the options available to parents but uh, in uh, um, the, the second part of this program, we're going to be talking about how we have to impact public education and options that are available. You know, there's, there's uh, you know, Kathy, the way I look at it, we, we did not send our kids to public education. We, uh, we, we homeschooled all five of our children, um, but we, we don't think we should abandon the public uh, education system. In fact, we encourage Christians to go in as teachers and Christians to run for school boards because we, we've got to be there to make sure or at least to try to stop this indoctrination that's taking place of children. And, you know, I, I know some will say, well, you're just focusing on sex ed. But I want to, again, emphasize that this is in every aspect of the curriculum. You talk about the bathroom policies, the shower, the locker rooms, and just the whole idea of a gender identity and the sexual confusion that is being pushed in every aspect, but 
in, in the pamphlet that you put together, the, the paper that you put together, it's available, by the way, folks, at TonyPerkins.com, looking at this comprehensive sex education, I mean, you basically say that this is how to uh, have sex workshops for kids. Yes, they are teaching uh, children how to consent to sex, how to pleasure your sex partner, how to get a secret abortion. I mean, it is beyond shocking. And then again, the really huge game changer is teaching kids they could be born in the wrong body. Some of these policies that are being implemented beyond the sex ed class are school-wide, where where uh, policies are requiring everybody in the school to lie to a child and to say, yes, you really are a little girl, even though it's a boy. You know, yes, you are in the wrong body. Um, yes, at forcing children to use false pronouns for, for students or teachers. This is a very, very serious matter, especially with Christian children. When, when Christian children are forced to either pronounce their own pronouns or to use false pronouns for others, that's really a, a form of religious conversion. Yeah. We don't believe that. We believe in God's purposeful creation of male and female. And when we Christians are forced by our words to affirm this false thing, it's really forced conversion in my that's my conclusion. I mean, it's super serious. Yes. So, it's happening in we see the clubs that are being set up in schools, the gay straight alliance clubs which come to dominate the culture of a school. We see these horrible NEA posters. You talk about the National Education Association. Posters in every classroom they want to see making kids affirm that they are either transgender allies or if they're not that makes them bullies. Right. You know, the, the psychological manipulation that's well beyond sex ed class all throughout these schools, kids are swimming in it. And there are options for parents, and we're going to talk about those coming up. Uh, Kathy Roos, thanks so much for joining us, and appreciate the great work you do. Thank you, Tony. Folks, stay with us. We're back after this. Do Christians have a biblical obligation to participate in government? Do Christians have a duty to vote? And if so, what principles should inform them while casting their ballots? How should pastors think about politics, and how can they shepherd their congregations well during an election season? The gospel of Jesus Christ has implications for all areas of our life, including politics. Christians must be prepared to grapple with the moral issues of our day, the reality of our two-party system, and follow our Christian convictions to their logical end by voting for candidates that support clear biblical values. Family Research Council has partnered with 21 state family policy councils for a new edition of Biblical Principles for Political Engagement. This booklet provides biblical wisdom and clear answers to pivotal questions to help you navigate the political landscape. This publication exists to facilitate careful thinking about issues and encourage God-honoring political engagement that filters all issues and candidates through a biblical worldview. To read the full publication, visit frc.org engage. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation and the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider and instructor, 
a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Hey, Matt. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us for this uh, special in-depth look at rethinking public education. And again, I want to put out the uh, the poll question that I raised earlier. As a parent, has the coronavirus and the shutdown in public education caused you to rethink education options for your children? If you'd like to participate in that, text the word RADIO to 53445, that number 53445, text the word radio, I'll send you a link to uh, to the poll question. You know, m- many are, uh, are anxious about sending their kids back to school amid the uh, the pandemic. In fact, I made reference to an, a recent AP poll. It, it's kind of interesting. Democrats don't want to send their kids back. Republicans ready to send them back. Um, I think as a conservative, this is an opportunity to rethink public education. I mean, we're just talking with Kathy Roos about what's happening in the classrooms and as it pertains to sex education. But also, my next guest points to the radicalization that is happening in public school classrooms. And I would go so far as to say what we see unfolding on the streets of America is a byproduct of public education. Joe now is uh, Mary Rice Hassan. She is a an attorney. She is also the Kate O'Brien Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She is co she has authored the book Get Out Now Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late. Mary, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Tony. Glad to be on. Well, let me start with that first point that you've made, that when one of the, the the elements of the public school classroom is the radicalization of our children. Right. And we spend a lot of time talking about what's happening on the university campuses, and yet there's a, a really important survey that's done every year of college freshmen, and it's it's given to about 100,000 100, students right at the beginning of the year before they've really been exposed to the college environment and college classes. And it's from that that we can look and say, what are they coming out of our public school system believing and thinking? And I was just looking at the data from uh, 2019, in other words, the freshmen from this year. And what we find is that the vast majority of, of kids call themselves Uh, well, either middle, but liberal or radical left, and that it's almost twice as many who are calling themselves that as opposed to conservative. But perhaps more importantly, we see a a difference in in how they view themselves compared to their parents. There's only about two-thirds of entering college students who say that they hold the same beliefs as their parents. And we see that in religion, but we see it also with this politicization, this, this bent towards activism. So 40% of these, these college freshmen are entering saying they're already planning to be part of protests and demonstrations, just, just kind of in general. That, that's what they've learned, that, that being a citizen is about activism, not in a productive way, but in terms of, of what we're seeing on the streets, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so Mary, let me ask you, are you surprised with what we see happening in some of America's major cities as a result of your study in public education? No, actually I'm not, because 
when, when we looked at and spent several years researching what was going on in the public schools, um, and, and I'll preface this by saying there are many good teachers, administrators, and families who have their kids in public yes, schools, so, right. so I, I certainly don't want to disparage them. But the reality is most parents have very little control over what their kids are being exposed to, and they're kept in the dark. And so what we were seeing was this, this influx of materials coming from almost exclusively from progressive organizations that supplement approved curricula. So you have Southern Poverty Law Center, which does teaching tolerance, and they provide a steady stream of materials to public school teachers. And so that's the sort of thing that's brought into the classroom sort of in a back-end way but, but more importantly, when, one, one thing I've heard from parents as they've been home with their kids over the past few months is they're having conversations that they really weren't having before, and they're realizing their kids have embraced this view of America as uh, just a toxic country, uh, a, a place that's fundamentally unjust, and, and they've just sort of absorbed what they've been taught. But that's radically different from what, from the values and beliefs that their parents have been trying to instill in them. And, and we're going to talk about in a moment about what that's prompting parents to do in terms of rethinking their children's education and what options might be available for them. But, but, but I want to go a little bit deeper on that point as you have, again, done research into the public education system. When did public education take this radical turn to the left? I mean, I'm a product of public education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I went to school in Oklahoma. It was a God-fearing, uh, you know, American-loving school. Mm-hmm. Um, when did education take this hard turn left? Well, it clearly has taken this hard turn left in the last decade. But I would say in some places, the more conservative areas of the country, it's even in the past five years. But under the Obama administration, there was a whole lot that was just brought into the schools. And, and local school boards are co-opted, and they're, uh, they're doing the will of the teachers' unions. They're not listening to the parents. So we saw that with the fight over in uh, just countless school districts over gender identity and transgender policies. And you'd have parents showing up in droves to address their concerns for their kids' privacy, safety, their religious freedom, scientific reality, the truth of biology, and they would bring all this forward, and yet the school boards just voted lockstep with the LGBT lobbies as well as the teachers' unions and, and all of the teacher professional associations. We really have to think of them as lobbies, the school counselors association, the secondary school principals, all of those. They're all lockstep with the progressive agenda. So it's it's been eye-opening for many parents that even though they may have sent an older child to public school and, and they graduated, say, five, seven years ago, what their, what their younger children are being not just exposed to but, but um, indoctrinated right. with is radically worse and, and there's far less freedom to disagree without being called a bigot or, or shamed or, or just silenced which is very tough for any child. Mary, we're up against a break. Uh, I want to ask you to hold on for just a second. We're going to come back because I want to finish this conversation and also talk about some alternatives for for parents as they rethink 
what their children are being exposed to. Folks, don't go away. We're going to continue our conversation with Mary Rice Hassan on the other side of this break. Don't go away. You won't want to miss it. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So glad that you are with us as we're taking a deep dive into public education, rethinking public education. My guest in this segment, Mary Rice Hassan, she's an attorney. She is also the author of Get Out Now, Why You Should Pull Your Child from Public School Before It's Too Late. Mary, thanks so much for uh, sticking with us through the break there. I want to go, first off, the point you made at at the very end there is that this is not the public education that uh, parents went to, nor even their older siblings. I mean, it's just changed in the last decade. We've seen this radical change in public education, new world, new radical world for public education. But I want to underscore something you write about in your book so that our listeners understand that not only is there this radical sex education, but in order to accomplish that, they also have to attack religion. And that's in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think our public schools have become a God-free zone, unless, of course, you're talking about you know, certain minority religions, which can be brought in in some places, but even there, not, not exclusively. It's, it's largely God-free. And so, again, if you look at the data, if you look at, at um, young people who are just graduated, what we find is that a third of them are atheist, agnostic, or nothing. Again, coming out of high school. In other words, they've been living at home. They're surrounded by whatever faith their parents are bringing them up in. And yet still, they're, they're rejecting faith. So those, those numbers are twice as high as what their own parents' beliefs are. In other words, it's not that you have uh, 8% of of parents who are professed atheists and, and they're raising, you know, 8% of our kids are, are atheists. It's not that at all. It's twice as high. So something's going on in the public schools that is just uh, creating this negative perception towards faith, towards religion, and, and encouraging kids to put their faith in progressivism, in science as the ultimate authority, Google, you know, mm-hmm. but God's not part of those big question conversations, and that's having an impact. Now, Mary, you, you said you've had many conversations in the last few months with parents who are having conversations with their kids who are at home and distance learning, and they're actually looking at the curriculum, and they're, they're being exposed to some things that their kids are exposed to on a regular basis, and they're rethinking the whole public education um equation. What are you hearing? Well, I'll give you an example. I was talking with one woman who in her um, public school district, the kids no longer have books that they take home. So she is a parent who's working all day and then she can't sit down with her child and help her child do homework if the child has homework, but she has very limited opportunity to see what the child's even being taught. So in this lockdown, she had a different opportunity to see what was coming through and just was appalled both in terms of 
of the politicized slant, but also the way it was it was undermining the values that she and her husband were trying to instill in the kids. And so here's the thing I would encourage parents to realize is, you know, there's no do-over on childhood. Mm. You, you get one mm. chance. And while uh, this is an opportunity to step back and say, how can I help my child flourish, both in terms of faith, intellectually, in terms of healthy relationships, in terms of a strong patriotism? How can I help my child flourish? And, and so I really think this is, this is a moment when we can say to the government, let the money follow the child. Let parents decide what the best educational option for their children will be. And I, that's what I'm hearing from parents, parents who I never thought would ever consider uh, taking their kids out of the standard public school system are just, they're fed up, and they realize there are so many more options. There's, there's creativity happening as parents are figuring out, you know, how are we going to do this? Yeah, Can we, we get together with a small group or, or, or what? There are many n- options. It's not as difficult as, uh, as you might think. Um, we can attest to that as a homeschool family. But, and, and we're going to explore some of those options here coming up in, in just a moment. But I, I, I want to underscore, I want you to underscore for our listeners what you see based upon the data, not not mm-hmm. not not emotional appeal, although that's important. The data, the urgency at this moment of what our children need and what they're being exposed to, and what we need to do as parents. So I think one of the things we haven't really talked about very much is just the promotion of gender ideology through the schools, and especially in light of the recent Supreme Court decision that is giving employment protections to gender identity, in other words, transgender-identified persons. When we look at the data, what we're seeing is a spike in the number of kids who are identifying as LGBT, but really in terms of non-binary, transgender, gender queer, just all these different identities. So one of the things that, that parents need to keep their eye on is that if you're a person of faith, this is going to be contradictory to what we believe about the human person. Right. But even just from a, a plain old human being standpoint, this is deeply destabilizing to kids. When they go to school and they show up and someone tells a little girl, there's no such thing as girls. You could be, it's however you want to identify. That's deeply destabilizing. And so that's one thing for parents to keep their eye on because so much of that has just been... Uh, pushed through the system in the past, particularly in the past five years, and it's only going to get worse. Mary, we're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time again. I want to thank you for joining us, and we are certainly going to revisit this topic. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, folks. Don't go away. We're coming back with more options for you as parents. Next, don't go away. rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increased pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. 
How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history. They'll help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash sexuality. Again, that's frc.org slash sexuality. In today's culture, it can be difficult for men to navigate what it means to be a man and to find clear models of masculinity and manhood. There are many competing ideas out there and even confusion around the basic concepts of gender and sex. Where can boys, young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of manhood, leadership, and strength in today's culture of confusion? This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join me at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference led by men who are seasoned, compassionate leaders who understand the issues of the day. These issues will invest in unpacking our role as defenders, providers, instructors, and battle buddies so that men can have generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Join us at one of our upcoming events in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, or Virginia. Learn more about Stand Courageous and find an event near you at StandCourageous.com. That's StandCourageous.com. StandCourageous.com. I'm Tony Perkins, and you're listening to Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Again, if you miss anything on your way home today, you can catch it all later archived at TonyPerkins.com. In fact, as I mentioned, this is a uh, multi-part uh, um, program. We're doing a couple of programs, a few programs, actually, on education. So this is the first. Uh, you might want to share this with friends. You know, uh, my, my view is we should be rethinking public education, not reopening. Um, this is an opportunity to rethink public education in this country. And uh, let me put this poll question out there again for you. If you'd like to participate, you can text the word radio to 53445. That's 53445. And here's the question. As, as a parent, has the coronavirus and the shutdown in public education caused you to rethink education options for your children? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next is, uh, are rather the, the options that are available. It's not as difficult as some would have you think. Joining me now to, uh, to talk more about this is, uh, Candace Duggar. She's the founder of the Reimagine Education Conference and she's been helping parents rethink education to approach it in such a way that it fits the needs of their children. Candace, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Tony. Tony, it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, let me just start with this. We were talking uh, before we went on air about the um, how public education has become complex, at least from uh, an outward perspective, because of all of the various elements that have been rolled into public education. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I take a look at education today, and it's not just a system that is meant to educate our children. We, include, we have child care wrapped up within that. We have our social services, our lunch programs. We have all of our services for children with learning disabilities and differences and their therapies. It has become an anchoring place for so many of these services, and I can understand why it was done that way. But it has become such an animal and such a big, a big ball that we almost need to break it down into each piece so that we can better serve families at a nuclear level. 
if you're a homeschooler in many areas, you can't access those services unless you're part of the government education. And it's just not necessarily the right approach for many families. And, and you know, and that's by design, I believe, so that people are dependent upon the public education system. And it's interesting. I made reference earlier to a an AP poll uh, that was conducted about whether or not people want the schools reopened. Um a large percentage, a majority, were more concerned about those additional elements of the education system than they were in the actual learning of their children, about the counseling programs, about the lunch programs. Those were of a, a higher priority for some parents than the actual education itself. We find that too, Tony. When I'm talking to so many families who are who are looking to leave public education and look at alternative options. They know the education system is not working for their children. It's not getting them where they want to go. But all of those other nuggets that keep them kind of ingrained and holding on kind of gives fear to not want to make a transition and try something new that they just know it's not working, but they're really terrified to see what else is out there because they're going to lose so many other options that they depend on. So, Candace, let's talk a little bit about some of those options. I mean, it is uh, it can be a, a, a major decision and uh, and a daunting one at that to th- think about removing your children from the public school system. Now, granted, that's not an option for every parent, but there are alternatives that are out there that can can help almost any parent and any child in any situation. And you're right. So as a parent myself, I've had my children in public school and in private school. We actually left public education, and it was terrifying for me at the time as a parent, but I knew that my child's mental health, his well-being, and his education was so broken that we had to do something different. And when I came into the world of homeschooling, to me, all I could imagine was what I had seen on television. I had no idea when I came into this world that there would be opportunities for me for my child to be able to take online classes with live professors and teachers, to be able to go to micro schools in my community, to be able to attend semi-private academies or online schools. In my mind, all I thought I was going to do was be teaching my child, and I knew I probably wasn't equipped to teach a child on the spectrum and one with dyslexia and dysgraphia and ADHD and all of these other special needs that I had become dependent on the school system to be able to walk us through, and I really thought I needed that support. But once we left and came into the homeschool community, it was almost like we got out of the maze and we saw how many opportunities in education were out there, and every single class could be hand-selected for my child where they were in that moment. We could advance where we needed to and slow down where we needed to. And when I'm talking to parents about making this transition, the first thing we want them to do is, number one, always be legal and compliant, right? Know your state laws. Know what that is. But once you get a handle on that, take some time to discover your child and do some research to figure out what alternatives are out there. For many families, the way of homeschooling from the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s are gone. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're telecommuting your education. Just like many of us telecommute our jobs from our homes now, we're able to offer that for our children. So when families are fearful, it's not the education. You're right. They're able to wrap their brain around replacing the education. They're struggling to replace the other items that they're concerned about. Let's talk for a moment about the educational component, because I think even some are locked into 
this um, stereotypical view of education that you sit at a desk for so many hours a day and you've got to go through this this subject, you got to go through this subject. You, you have to understand that, that homeschooling, these alternatives, are not a replication of public education. Oh, you are so right. Um, people look at our family and they wonder what our school day looks like. And we took a child from who was hardly writing a sentence in seventh grade to now starting college two years earlier, being certified as a life coach, classes around the world, and uh, traveling nationally and as an athlete being recruited from colleges and working with the NCAA. All of that happened, and none of it looked like traditional education. We didn't sit at a desk in our home with a computer from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Our world was ingrained, and everywhere we went, we were learning. It was real practical learning in every Everywhere we went, whether it was out at business meetings that he attended to with me or we were in co-op and he was learning from other former teachers who now teach in the homeschool community or he happened to be Skyped into uh, a class in Texas or a tutor in Venezuela. All of that didn't look like traditional education, but it taught him critical thinking and the ability to take ownership of his own education, not waiting for a teacher to give him a piece of paper to learn what was on it to get him back in a test. He had to learn to kind of fend for himself and go find the stuff for learning. And it did take a little bit of time, but once you start teaching children that independence, it gives them a skill set for life to actually start turning out citizens who are really competent to be able to take jobs and and leap forward in entrepreneurial skills and be employees that we need for the next generation. And part of that process is shaping and molding an educational approach that works for your family and for your children. And one of the things that our experience in homeschooling is just like you said, learning is all the time. It's every aspect, whether it's in the kitchen, whether it's, uh, you know, with dad on a business trip or mom uh, at the office. We're constantly learning, but we're learning life application skills. It is. Well, I mean, isn't that how we all learned? If we really look at education and the way it's been molded in the last 100 and 150 years, it's changed so drastically that many of our kids aren't learning the wisdom and the knowledge from the generations before. And they're learning a lot from their peers and behavior and communication. Yes. But as somebody who works with a lot of kids who are struggling with bullying and mental illness and cyberbullying and online attacks, their mental health is not in a great place. And we always try to look at in our, when we're working with families, we're going to deal with mental health before math, and we're going to deal with character before curriculum. And we're going to get our children in a place that they're really ready to take on these these tough topics and to be able to be leaders in wherever we're kind of launching them for the future. So one thing that really does kind of um, freak parents out, I think, a little bit is when we start talking about methodologies of education, they really wonder if they're even going to be qualified to, to teach these different subjects. But the answer is yes. There are so many resources out there for you that you will fly high. When your family takes the time to realize what your child needs and what your family values are and what the goal is for this child, you will find the right curriculum. It's almost like God just puts it in front of you. Yeah. For some families, that might be a classical education. For others, they're really looking for a biblical worldview. For others, they're looking for an, uh, an unschooling or Charlotte Mason. Even though all these things may sound scary in the beginning, 
when you start to understand, you really do gravitate to a way that your family, your beliefs, and your what you're looking to accomplish, it almost aligns perfectly. You have to get out of the mindset of your choice is band or music. Yeah, right? that... You're going to go to choir or band. You have the choice in everything. That is so, so insightful, Candace, because there is no like one size fits all. It is just as you design your curriculum that works for your children, your family. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I want to, I want to tap into something you just returned to something you said a moment ago about the influence of the peers when, when kids oh, are in school yeah. and how they, you know, that, that's kind of what shapes their behavior. 30 years ago when I, when I did a, I was a reporter and I did a story on homeschooling. And this was back in the 80s, you know, when everybody was looking at home or early 90s. Um, uh, homeschooling is kind of different back then. And people thought, well, they're not socialized. Well, actually, w- what we have found out is that homeschooled children are actually better socialized because they interact with adults and they can communicate much more effectively and they don't have all of that negative peer pressure. You're right. I actually ended up having to break and recorrect a lot of the socialization that happened in school when I brought my children home. And um, a, a big part of the work that I do is actually training and equipping leaders and those in the homeschool community on how do we embrace these families coming out of public education who left because their children have attempted suicide. They're cutting the self-harming behavior, the, the just um, anxiety and panic to go to school. When we bring them home and they can take the time to figure out how they were created and what their talent is, really have the time to hone in on that, their confidence comes up in the world. And they're not broken down. Their spirit isn't broken. And they're ready to tackle harder things. I've really literally been from psychiatric wards of sitting with children and their families who know they can't go back, but they're terrified to make a transition. And six months later, when the child's home, And they've been able to put themselves and surround themselves by other healthy children who are, um, you know, kind of able to help guide them in a, in a, a social behavior way. They can make those transitions and they come out stronger. They're not having the, you know, many times their mental health is just in such a better place. And they're actually not surrounded by peers who are trying to break them down every moment. They've Mm. been able to make that transition and find that not only do they enjoy their education, but they have a purpose, and they're ready to go tackle that purpose. But it takes getting them to a point that they believe in themselves. And unfortunately, my experience, Tony, was that the public education system spent 80% of the time focusing on what my children did not do well. One's on the spectrum, and one has severe learning differences. Most of their day was reinforced on how they're not able to learn. They had to hit those benchmarks so they could make their SOLs or their testing. When we came home, we spent 80% of our day learning how they were created and what they did well. And the other 20% of the time, we focused on how we could really kind of tweak and encourage some of those things that needed more help. But that one thing alone, flipping those numbers on their head, allowed them to have confidence that they had value. And that they were worthy and that they had something to contribute that was so much more than just um, failing the next test. And now my youngest, who's 12, is a published author and he speaks and he travels and he's trying to get his first TED Talk. And all this from a child at nine years old that found under the bed screaming and crying 
I would rather die than go back there another day. Wow. Three several years later. Powerful. Uh, Candace, I could uh, I, I could talk about this all day long, but unfortunately I don't have we don't have the time because we're gonna run out in just a moment. But before we do I just got to ask this question for those parents that are listening and they're 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 relating this. Wow, that's that's where we are. I I wish I could make this step. I I, I want to go there. Let lay it out as an educational transition expert. Wh- what are the first three steps? Number one, you need to know your state laws and organizations like HSLDA or your state leader group will help you do that. You always want to be in compliance with your state laws. So, for example, I'm here in Virginia. We need to send it on notice of intent by August 15th. So that's number one. Number two, I do not recommend you jump right into the books. Take some time with you and your child to explore what those goals are. And don't try to set goals for the next five years. Between now and May, make it a discovery year. What is the goals for this child? What do we need them to accomplish in the next year? And then step three is finding the support and the curriculum or the outside classes that are going to align with those goals. For many working parents, they may need to realize that they need childcare half the day and their education might be on the evenings and the weekends, and that's okay. Mm. But once you set your goals and you really identify what your goals are for your family, then you're able to set up a plan. Trying to do it in reverse, and here's a box curriculum, how do we make it work? doesn't necessarily work. Candace Duggar, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Uh, we're going to have you back on again to talk more about this, but thanks so much for taking time with us today. Thank you, Tony. It's been wonderful. And folks, thank you for joining us as well. Check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. And remember, this is just the first of a multi-part series on this issue of education. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where it says you've done everything you can do and you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand. By all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.